doing what you want, doing how you want it, doing when you want it, sounds like the recipe for happiness. Sounds like the recipe for joy and freedom and independence. This is how we are often tempted to think and to want to live. Uh, college students, uh, some of you um, perhaps are here for the first time. Perhaps some of you are for the first time in Austin. You have finally begun college away from family, away from parents, away from perhaps a church. And finally, you may think, I can finally do what I want. I can do things when I want them to do them and how I want them to be done. A sense of freedom, a sense of independence, a sense of self-rule. Maybe the recipe that this world will lure you to thinking, finally you have arrived at a stage in life when, when, when you can do what you want. Now this morning, I want us to look at the alluring path of self-rule. It is a, an alluring path. It is a path that promises much. It is a pro- path that, that gives you confidence in yourself and gives you a sense of freedom, a sense of independence. Our world loves these values. And yet, as we will see from God's Word today, uh, the path of self-rule is indeed a powerful, alluring path, but is a path that will not deliver to the full extent that it promises. This week, today, we are back in our sermon series of of the book of First Samuel. And uh, today our message will be a little different uh, because it's been at least five months that we have been in this book. Uh, we, we, we began this book earlier in the year and we have made it through pretty much through chapter 8. Uh, today, instead of going into chapter 9, which we, would be the normal uh, next step, I decided to take a, a pause and give us a review of the first eight chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, as a way of getting us back to remind ourselves of where uh, we have been so far in this book, and also as a means of encouraging those who are visiting us for the first time to, to give you a context of what has been happening in the book of 1 Samuel before we jump into chapter 9, which, Lord willing, will be next week. So I encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We'll be covering from chapter 1 to chapter 8. Now, don't worry, we will not be reading all eight chapters today, but we will be reading the first chapter and chapter 8. So I encourage you to read with me from 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'll be reading the first 20 verses, and then we'll be moving to chapter 8, the entire chapter. Here's God's word for us this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Remathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. 
The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way. And ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now move to chapter 8. Verse 1 to the end of the chapter. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. 
they took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from, this, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving all other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will Take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. For the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No. But there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to them, to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. Amen. Let's pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of his word in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You have told us in your word of the means by which you have desired to gather a people for yourself. You have started with Abraham. And then you have built a people from the 12 tribes of, of Israel. You have shown us in the Old Testament of your ways with them. Father, as we hear of your truth, as we hear of the journey of what you have intended for your people, as they, fail, as they failed time and again, Father, help us to hear your word and help us to hear the stories of, of your encounter with your people and learn from them. Father, we pray that you would open us, open our hearts by your Holy Spirit, so that Christ may shine before us through the means and through the testimony and through the 
witness of the history of your people, Israel. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, the story of God's people, Israel, from the Old Testament, is written for us, is preserved for us, for examples for us, as a means of us taking warning, as a means of taking encouragement, as a means of taking uh, examples of what to do or what not to do. Uh, we are back in the story of First Samuel. This story aims to tell us of the transition uh, in the history of the people of Israel from the time of the judges uh, to the time when God brought his people to experience and have a king over them. Uh, today, as we look at this overview of these eight chapters, uh, I would like for us to look at two broad uh, elements. The first part will be a review of the narrative. We will review the narrative of, of the eight chapters. And then in the second part of the sermon, we'll look at a few lessons learned so far. Let's look at the, the review of, of what has happened in this book so far. Uh, the historical setting of the book uh, in the beginning of this book, we are given a few clues uh, that the setting is, and the time reference is very similar to what has happened uh, during the time of the judges. Uh, the, the time of the judges uh, is a part, is a historical setting for the book of 1 Samuel. How, how do we know that and what, what are some clues about that? Well, first of all, um, we, the story happens in chapter 1 in the country of Ephraim. If we had finished reading the book of the Judges, uh, the last few scenarios or last few stories in the book of Judges happen in the country of Ephraim. It's as if the story and the, the narrative of the book of Judges continues on uh, with another story from the country of Ephraim. But there's other, uh, other things that we will see happening. Uh, the story of the, of the book of Judges uh, ends on this theme or note that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. This is how the book of Judges closed. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The book of 1 Samuel picks up at that same story, at the same, at the same moment in the narrative. It was a time of corrupt worship, as we have seen at the end of the book of Judges, and as we will see at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. The corruption of worship is clued in for us in the very first few verses of this book. Notice that when the, the author of 1 Samuel sets up the, the narrative, it tells us about this family of Elkanah, and how he would go with his family to worship to Shiloh every year, year after year. And what was significant about Shiloh was not that Eli was there, but that Eli's two sons were there. Just notice with me in verse 3. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. 
on a, on a first glance, this may not tell us much. But as we go into chapters 2 and 3, we discover that Eli's sons were crooked priests. And Eli did not do anything to remove them from their office. Instead, Eli preferred to honor their, his sons instead of honoring the Lord. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel starts with this historical setting of corrupt priests running the show of Israel's religious life. They carried their roles as priests based on their self-rule. They did what was right in their own eyes. And this was happening not merely in the lives of, of the people of Israel. This was happening at Shiloh, where the Ark of the Lord was, was situated. These priests would act satisfying their first First of all, their self-desires in how they conducted the worship of God. So the self-rule that we have seen in the book of Judges is the setting of the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel ends with a picture of God killing the first king of Israel because he too had become corrupted. And the legacy of his reign was that he chose not to follow the Lord, but to do what was pleasing in his own eyes. Saul ended up being the king who, who, who lost the kingship because he refused to do what the Lord asked him to do. He would be a king, the first king of Israel, who would actually reign for about four decades, but his kingship was was described by the legacy of being the, the king who would pursue and try to kill God's ultimate and appointed true king, King David. But the book's last chapters closes with Saul, the corrupt king, being killed in battle and losing the war for his people, just as God had confirmed to Saul earlier. The book of 1 Samuel closes with the stage being cleared for the coming of the king after God's own heart. So we might say that the book of 1 Samuel describes a journey from the chaos of self-rule to the king after God's own heart. This is how we might summarize the entire book of 1 Samuel. Sin corrupts our hearts so that we instinctively, naturally, prefer self-rule. And God's purpose is to bring us to the place where we turn away from self-rule and desire to follow God's anointed king, a king who would submit to God's word wholeheartedly and fulfill it so closely and so fully that it would take him even to the point of death and death on a cross. The, the book of 1 Samuel shows us that the first king of Israel is not Saul. He is the first king of Israel, but not, not the king after God's own heart. King David will become that pattern. King David will be the one who will be a king after God's own heart. But if we read the, the second part of the, of the book of Samuel, the, 
the second Samuel, we find out that even King David was not a perfect king. He had his share of grievous sins. Nevertheless, he took the path of repentance and turned away from his sins, a path which Saul never did. So that's why we see in the book of 1 Samuel, we're introduced to this journey from the path of self-rule to the king after God's own heart. Now, this, is, uh, this is in a summary statement, the book of 1 Samuel. But let's see how the first eight chapters unfold the story. In chapter 1, we're introduced to Elkanah and his family's crisis. Uh, we know that some things were not right about this family. Uh, for one, he had two wives. This was not God's intent, uh, even though we see this, this pattern over and over again in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the two wives, Hannah, um, was barren. She was not only barren, but she was also insulted by the other, the second wife of Elkanah, and she was afflicted. And she was afflicted particularly at the moment of going to Shiloh for, for the yearly conference of worship. And she was also misunderstood by her husband, who tried to comfort her with man-made, man-centered solutions to comfort a troubled heart. Hannah realized that no human solution can help her. So what does Hannah do in chapter 1? She, she does that which we all should do. She turns to the Lord in her affliction. She runs to Him. She asks of the Lord. She asks of the Lord for, for what seemed an impossible request, something that she could not control, for her, for her womb to be opened. She asked of the Lord to open her womb and to give her a child, a male child, and that she would devote him to the Lord. And the Lord answered Hannah's prayer. The Lord opened her womb and gave Hannah a little boy, and she called him Samuel. In chapter 2, Hannah does what we are often forgetful to do when we make promises to the Lord. Hannah fulfills her vow to the Lord, even though this was her first child. And she brought this child to the Lord when this child was barely weaned off. Hannah brings a little boy to the temple and leaves him there. And she offers there at the temple on that day of bringing Samuel to the Lord, she offers a prayer of praise. It's a prayer that Pastor Ryan read for us earlier in the service in chapter 2. It's a prayer of praise descri describing that God is able to overcome the proud in their thoughts. The fact that God is able to overrule and turn the tables on those who, who feel empowered and strength. And God restores those who are needy, those who have been afflicted, those who have been in need, those who, those who have been in need and find and turn to the Lord. We want to be cautious of not somehow thinking that just any poor person will be restored to the Lord. It's only those who turn to the Lord in their neediness. We want to be, be that clear because today it's so common to, to think about a, a, a particular platform of 
of socialism or just dealing with the needs of the needy, but who want to find restoration apart from the Lord. This is not what Hannah's prayer is about. Hannah's prayer offers great hope for the needy, for the afflicted who turn to the Lord and will find response, refine restoration in the Lord. Surprisingly, her prayer, Anna's prayer, ends on, a, on an element that seems totally out of the blue if we just finished reading chapter 2. Anna's prayer ends with a reference to God's future king. Hannah's prayer is a summary of the theology of the entire book of 1 Samuel. God will indeed overturn the proud and exalt the power of His beloved King. And as soon as Hannah's prayer is over, she turns, returns back home. Chapter 2 tells us the details of the rest of the story. Hannah uh, indeed is following with, with, Eli, with uh, Samuel's growth as, as Hannah visits him year after year. But in contrast to the growth of, of the little boy Samuel, chapter 2 ends with the description of other sons, Eli's sons. And here's where we find out about the corruption of Eli's sons. It's as if the author of First Samuel wants us to see a contrast between the young boy, Samuel, that the Lord has given to Hannah and the Hannah has given back to the Lord and is growing the temple, and Eli's two corrupt sons. Uh, Samuel was growing up in the presence of corrupt priests with a corrupt environment. And yet, this chapter, chapter 2, closes with a visit from a prophet of God who came to Eli to inform him that God will destroy his house. God will take away the priesthood from Eli's household because he knew of the sins of his sons and he did nothing about it. Eli is convicted of honoring his sons more than honoring the Lord. You might wonder, in a context of corruption, when that corruption has affected even the leadership of the people of God, when this young boy, Samuel, is growing among people who are corrupt, is there any hope for anything to, to get better? And the answer is yes, there is hope. The hope is in the Lord. In chapter 3, the Lord reveals himself to Samuel and confirms to Samuel, to the little boy, that all the judgments that God decreed against Eli in chapter 2, they will all come true. So in chapter 3, the young boy Samuel hears God's voice. Has the Lord called him? Samuel, Samuel. And the Lord gives this young boy who was still in training, we might say he was an intern at the temple in Shiloh. Nobody gave any uh, serious responsibility to him. He was just a little boy who was growing up in the temple. And yet, God entrusts this little boy with an incredibly weighty message, serious message to give to Eli 
what a difficult task the message of the judgment of the religious leaders. And, and, he, and Samuel has to deliver this message. This was the first sermon he preached. A message of judgment. And he preached it to the very audience who was raising him up. How difficult that task must have been. In chapter 4, we find out that everything that God had told Samuel to, to declare to Eli's household, everything came out and happened just as God revealed it. God fulfilled His word of judgment by bringing a great devastation against Israel. 30,000 soldiers were killed from Israel's army that day. The ark of the Lord was also captured by the Philistines, and Eli's sons were both killed in that same day, just as God had decreed earlier. Eli's, Eli hears the, word, the, the news and dies when he hears it by breaking his neck. He falls down, breaks his neck, and dies. Also that same day, one of Eli's daughters-in-law, who was pregnant, goes into labor at the hearing of the news. And during the process of giving birth, she dies. But while dying, before she dies, she names his, his child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. What a name for a child. In chapter 5, we find out that even though God's people experienced the, a great tragic loss on the battlefield, even though the ark of the Lord had been captured and it created a huge damage to all of Israel, despite of all this humiliation, God humiliated the Philistine god Dagon by breaking his neck and breaking the people of the Philistines. It's not the first time God breaks a neck. In this book, it happened in chapter 4 with Eli. It'll happen again later in the book when the giant of the Philistines will be killed by having his head severed from his body. But here in chapter 5, God does this conquering of the, of the Philistine god and of their cities all by himself. The Ark of the Covenant, apart from the army of the, of, the, of the Israelites, is doing some amazing winning in Dagon's temple. We might say God, Dagon had home court advantage, but it helped him nothing, zero, to stand before the Ark of the Lord. In chapter 6, the Philistines are so tired of the plagues of, of the ark of the Lord, that they decide to return the ark back to the Israelites. So they devise a plan in chapter 6. They return the ark of the Lord. They create a, a situation to double check to make sure that it really was the Lord that was against them. It was not a coincidence. And uh, their strategy fully confirms that it was the Lord who brought all this against the Philistines. And the people of Beth Shemesh received the ark, even though they did nothing to fight back for the ark. The Lord brought it back. But the people of Beth Shemesh, in their joy, 
disregard the instructions of the Lord of how they should treat the ark of the Lord. Even though the people of Bet Shemesh was a Levitical town, which means it was predominantly made up of Levites who were particularly instructed to know how to handle the ark of the Lord. In other words, it was not for the lack of, of knowledge, of knowing the instructions of how to handle the ark of the Lord. And yet, in their superficial joy, the people of Bet Shemesh disobey the word of the Lord in how to treat the ark, and the Lord kills 70 of them. So the people of Bet Shemesh, the ones who were supposed to know how to handle the ark of the Lord, call out for the people of another town who are predominantly dwelled by Gentile occupants. The Levite town calls for another town to come and take the ark of the Lord and take it away from them so they don't experience God's hand. How sad. In chapter 7, all the story about the ark somewhat comes to an end. And the, and the narrative fast-forwards about 20 years later. Samuel appears back on the stage. About 20 years later now, Samuel is an adult man. And uh, the people of the Lord are lamenting after the Lord. And Samuel calls them to repent by turning away from their idols. In other words, it's as if Samuel says, it's, if, you are, if you are lamenting after the Lord, it's not sufficient simply to have feelings for the Lord while holding on to her idols. Samuel says, if you are lamenting after the Lord, turn away from your idols. Repent. Yet at the very moment of their public repentance as a nation, so the people get excited, the people are submitting themselves to Samuel's leadership. They want to have a moment of public repentance before the Lord. And yet at that moment of public repentance, the Philistines come before the people of Israel, challenge them, and threaten them to take them over. At the very moment of public repentance, the enemy strikes again. Has that ever happened to you when you want to do what the Lord calls you to do? It often happens, friends, that when we turn to the Lord, when we want to take the path of repentance, that we encounter some new difficulties and challenges. But God gives the Israelites a major victory at Mitzvah against the Philistines. Chapter 7 closes with this wonderful summary. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. What a beautiful way to close that chapter. And then chapter 8 moves again, fast forward a few more decades to the, to the time when now Samuel is old in age and his ministry of judgeship is about to come to an end. In chapter 8, though, it feels like the narrative is not moving forward. It, even though time is moving forward, chapter 8 feels like the narrative goes backward. Not in time, but in the lessons of Israel. The narrative as it moves forward in time, moves backward theologically because we find out that Samuel's two sons are now also accused of not following the Lord and being corrupt. Remember who 
who was aware that we've seen that pattern before? It was in chapter 1 with Eli's two sons. And then, uh, instead of turning to the Lord, the solution the elders ask of Samuel is, is not to ask of the Lord for the transition plan. They come with a plan. And the plan is to ask for a king. Now, it was, it was not a problem to ask for a king. After all, remember Hannah's prayer? How she closed the prayer of praise with an anticipation that God will send a king and will give strength to his king. And Hannah's prayer was not the first one in the Old Testament that referenced the promise of a king for the people of Israel. If you go back to the book of Genesis, we find out. If we go back to the book of Numbers, we find out that there's a, a reference to the promised king. If we go to the book of Deuteronomy, we find out that God in the law, in the, in the covenant law, has given instructions about how the king of God's people should behave. It was not the, the request for a king that was a problem. It was the fact that they wanted a king to be like the nations. Despite all that God has done for the people of Israel to show them that He's able to, to win the battles for them, now at the end of Samuel's ministry, Despite all the success that God has given His people through Samuel's ministry, the people now request a king to be like the nations. So God warns the people to say, if you want a king like the nations, here is what you will get. This king will take away from you. This king will, will not be giving you things. This, will, this king will actually be characterized by taking from you. And he will not only take from you, he will also fail to provide the security that you ultimately need. And not only will he fail to provide the security that you will ultimately need, he will fail to provide you the comfort that you need because this king will actually end up being a thorn in your flesh. And you will ask, you will call out to the Lord because of your king. And at that moment, the Lord will no longer answer you. It's sad that chapter 8 closes with this this message of warning that the Lord will not answer the prayer of His people because chapter 1 began with a picture of the glory of God answering the prayer of a wife who pleaded to the Lord. But the people of God ignore the warnings. And they would prefer to go ahead with their plans of, of their preferences. This is the path of self-rule. How sad that after decades of Samuel's faithful ministry, the leaders of the nation continue to be lured by the desire to reject God, to be instead like the nations. In desiring a king like the nations, they follow their instinct for self-rule. They choose their preferences for what they liked, what they wanted, how they wanted it, and when they wanted it instead of asking God for the transition plan. Now, this is the review of the eight chapters. What are the lessons we take from these eight chapters? Let me suggest a few lessons for us in closing. Lesson number one, God's solution to our affliction does not depend on human potential. God's solution to our affliction does not depend on human potential. We see this story 
brought up and weaved in through these chapters in various ways. Uh, starting from the beginning, when the time of spiritual and moral corruption described the nation, described the priesthood. God, however, was planning to raise up a new priest over Israel. God's solution started with a barren wife who was insulted, misunderstood, and afflicted. But Hannah turned to the Lord, and the Lord opened her womb. Yes, a barren, insulted, and afflicted wife becomes a vehicle that God uses to bring a solution to Israel's corrupt leadership. And this teaches us a great lesson, the first lesson, that God's solution to our affliction does not depend on human potential. Friends, I wonder, where are you and I looking for solutions to the challenges that we face? Perhaps the challenges we face are caused by people that we know or by people that we don't know. Or perhaps we're frustrated by the, by the, by the moral and, and spiritual corruption that we see around us, whether it's in our nation or even in our own, among the people of God. Uh, these, these frustrations can cause us to try to deal with them in a human way, looking to human help, human potential. But let's learn that God's solution in our affliction it's not based on human potential. I'm so glad that the men are starting this fall, a discipleship group, uh, studying and deepening our desire to enjoy our prayer life. Prayer is one of the primary means and ways that we turn away from our confidence in ourselves and turn to the Lord and show dependence on the Lord. Let me also tell you, do you know what is one of the most, perhaps, or the most strategic ministry and service of our church? It's a Sunday evening prayer service. The Sunday evening prayer service is our most strategic service because in it we desire to seek the Lord corporately in prayer as a people, to declare that we do not depend on ourselves, to bring our needs before the Lord, bring our praises before the Lord, bring our grievances before the Lord. It's a regular rhythm in the life of our church through which we want to declare that our confidence is not in our human solutions, that our dependence is not in our human potential, but in the Lord. That's the first lesson we see in the story, that, that the, God's solution to our affliction is not dependent on human potential. Lesson number two, God can show His glory through the humiliation of His people. God can show His glory through the humiliation of his people. Chapter 4 closed with a statement that the glory of God has departed from God's people. And it's true in some sense. The ark of God, which represented God's covenant with his people, and therefore God's glory, was captured. But God's glory, dear friends, was never to be limited only to the ark of the covenant. God desired to show his glory not merely through a covenant, through the, the Ark of the Covenant. God desired to show His glory by living among His people. As His people listened to the Lord and followed the Lord, God would dwell among them. But the people, now at this moment in chapter 4, mourned the departure of the Ark 
But they failed to mourn for Israel's leaders when they became corrupt. That was a greater tragedy. That was a far greater tragedy than the capturing of the ark. The loss of the ark was only a physical symbol of, the depart of their departure from the Lord. So now God showed his glory by humiliating his people because they were the ones who have departed from the Lord. It was not the ark who left and therefore the glory departed. It was the sins of God's people that caused the glory of the Lord to be removed from his people. And now the token of the glory of the Lord was taken. Friends, sin causes us to fall short of the glory of God. Do you know where that comes from? The book of Romans. We all have sinned from, and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is severed from us because of sin. And often when God wants to get our attention on our sin, God brings seasons of humiliation and defeat. Friends, don't waste the moments when God lets you experience failure, defeat, and humiliation. While there could be a number of causes why the Lord would allow for that to happen, one of the possible reasons for that could be uh, God's way of humbling you and I to woo us back from our paths of self-rule. So consider that. Don't waste the moments of defeat and humiliation. Number three, a third lesson, God is not dependent on us to overcome the false gods and our enemies. God is not dependent on us to overcome the false gods and our enemies. As, a, as these chapters show us, God can carry out his battles by himself. He did not need any Israelite army to show his supremacy over the Philistine gods. This will be a crucial pattern later in the narrative when at the end of Samuel's life in chapter 8, as we read, Israel comes to Samuel and asks for a human king to lead them into battles. In choosing to depend on human leadership, strength, or strategy, the elders are missing the lesson that God had taught them in chapter 4 and 5 and 6. They are now forsaking the Lord again, even though, Lord, even though the Lord had showed them that He's sufficient for their battles. Centuries later, God will prove that he will fight alone the battle once again. Against sin and against death. Our greatest enemy. In sending Jesus Christ to earth, God sent his only begotten son to experience the tragic defeat. The tragic humiliation. What seemed to the to the human eye, the departure of the glory of God, someone crucified. But in going through that most humiliating experience, being taken out of the land of the living, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, gave up His breath, died. He died in the place of sinners took upon himself the shame that our sins deserved, the guilt that our sins deserved, 
so that through his death, all those who turn to the Lord may find back the glory of God. And God, three days later, rose Jesus from the dead, overcoming death by himself, so that through his victory, he can now grant his people the victory that they could never have earned on themselves. Oh, friends, may you and I trust in the God who wins the victory over the false gods and over our enemies by himself and gives us the victory and invites us into that victory. God is not dependent on us to overcome the false gods and our enemies. Therefore, we need to look to Him for that victory. And lesson number four and is that repentance is a far better strategy to overcome the enemy. Repentance is a far better strategy to overcome the enemy. This is what Samuel called the Israelites to do. If they lamented after the Lord, they should do so with their whole hearts by turning to the Lord. I wonder if there are some among us who have been far away from the Lord. And today is a day of turning to the Lord. Perhaps you feel far from the Lord today. Perhaps there is an inkling in your own heart that today is, is lamenting after the Lord. If so, I want to encourage you, I want to plead with you, turn to the Lord in repentance. Turn away from the idols that your heart has cleaved to. But be aware that on a day of, of repentance, just like the Philistines attacked, thinking that they would catch the Israelites in a vulnerable moment, it is possible that you may encounter new difficulties because the path of repentance often is filled with new challenges because of repentance, because of trusting in the Lord. But just like the Lord proved mighty for the Philistines, their strategy that Samuel called them was repentance, and the Lord gave them victory. So also, dear friends, I want to encourage you, repentance is a far better strategy to overcome the enemy than any human-made, self-centered way of figuring out how to get out of the challenges. Our flesh will tell us that you can do better by relying on your own strength to deal with your sin. You say, how, how is that possible? Well, you keep telling yourself, next time I'll do better. Next time I'll, I'll just put more more effort into it. Nobody needs to know about what I've done. I just, I'll just do better next time. Friends, that's a, that's a way of, of trying to have resolutions without repentance. It will not work. Sin never, never works that way. We cannot overcome sin on our own strength. Sin and flesh will tell you you don't need to repent. Just try to do it better. Or, don't worry about it. God will forgive you. God is gracious. You don't need to do anything about it. Just keep, keep living life. Friends, that's a lie. There is, no repent, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And there is no benefit of the shedding of blood without repenting and trusting in Christ. And lesson number five, be aware of new forms of rejecting God as king over us. Be aware of new forms of rejecting God. 
as king over us. For the elders of Israel, it was through asking for a king so they would be like the nations. In doing so, they showed that they despised the Lord who planned for his people from the beginning to be different than the nations. So let me ask you, in what ways are you unhappy with God's agenda to be different than the nations? Or are you lured in your walk to try to always live as close as you can to the nations, with the nations? Do you envy their confidence in their human-made strategies? Do you feel tempted in valuing what they value? Do you young, uh, hunger or yearn for their approval? It was not wrong to ask for a king. It was the motivation to be like the nations that spoiled their desire for a king. Friends, I wonder, do you realize that your motivations can spoil even the good things that the Lord may plan to give you? So I want to encourage you to ask yourself, do you tend to ignore the, the warnings that the Lord may give us to, ex- to, to examine ourselves, to examine what are the desires behind our desires? And if, if we desire something other than the Lord's glory, the Lord's path for that glory, it's possible that we actually may desire something other than the Lord, even when we seek to desire that which the Lord wants to give us. Do you tend to ignore the warnings that the Lord gives you in His Word? Do you prefer prefer to take the path of self-rule, the path of human reign, the path of doing what you want, how you want it, when you want it? in order to satisfy your desires? That is, dear friends, a path of self-rule. And the first eight chapters of this book show us that we are tempted to reject the Lord as king over us in new ways. Be aware of that temptation. And ask the Lord to give us hearts that submit to Him joyfully out of gratitude to Him because He is alone the God worthy of our full trust. Let's close in prayer.